Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear from a transplant surgeon about living donor kidney donations and pancreas transplants. Living donor is uh, is the only solution uh, we have that we can increase the uh, kidney transplant and even liver transplant done from living donor. Then, experts from the Comprehensive Stroke Center answer questions that listeners have about stroke in honor of National Stroke Awareness Month. So when I talk to my patients about how to think of the signs and symptoms of stroke, I try to make it as basic as possible. And really what it is, is it's a sudden subtraction of a function that you had. I could see, suddenly I can't. I could use my hand, suddenly I can't. I could speak, I could understand, I could feel, so on and so forth. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, a stroke neurologist fields a variety of questions having to do with stroke causes, prevention, and treatment. But first, a transplant surgeon addresses pancreas transplants and kidney transplants from living donors. A few weekends ago, the transplant surgeons at Upstate University Hospital were particularly busy. Four patients in the hospital chose to become organ donors, and from those four people, 12 lives were saved or enhanced through an organ transplant. Here to talk about that weekend is the Interim Chief of Transplant Services and Director of the Pancreas Program, Dr. Mark Loftavi. He's also a professor of surgery here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So how unusual is it for there to be more than one organ donor? donation going on at the same time? Well, as you know, the transplant uh, business is unpredictable. So um, sometimes you have a couple donors in one day and sometimes you have none. So uh, we have always to be prepared. And uh, our program actually is well uh, prepared to do uh, multiple uh, organs at the same time. So So during that weekend, indeed, we do six transplants, which all went well. Six transplants with four patients. How did they, how did it all, over Saturday and Sunday you had? Yes, over the weekends and Monday morning. And we had also some import uh, organs from other places that came to us. Wow. As we say, when it's raining, it's pouring, right? So. <laughs> Sounds like it. So how many surgeons and nurses and staff, how many people were involved in all of this? Well, we are um, having uh, three surgeons, and we hired a new surgeon. We will be four surgeons uh, soon, uh, by end of this month. Uh, we have about 30 uh, staff and uh, uh, physicians that work at the transplant program. So pretty much all hands on deck that particular I weekend? I know, yes. Everybody was uh, called to uh, to participate. <laughs> well, while respecting the privacy of these patients, what what can you tell us about each one? Like what... Well, uh, as you know, there are different kind of patients, but certainly uh, sometimes it's sad to see a life is ended, but also at the same time another life is uh, started. And uh, many of these patients got a second life to live uh, happily with their family. They were uh, mothers of the family, uh, children and uh, fathers, 
And uh, it's really impressive to see that uh, these people go back to their normal life, they go back to their family, and uh, can be uh, productive in, for their society and for their friends and family too. Did all of the organs that were donated by the four local patients, did they stay in Syracuse or did they go other no, uh, uh, some of them stayed here because, you know, based of the UNUS allocation system, we allocate United, organs differently, yes. United, United Nations network. Uh, network of organ sharing. Okay. UNUS, yes. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, global and national programs that uh, manage allocation of the organs, and uh, those who are at need the most, uh, they get priority. And in the new allocation system, indeed, the children uh, have been given the priority for transplant. And here at Upstate, I know we do um, kidney transplants and pancreas transplants, but we would not, for instance, do a heart. We might recover yes. a heart and, and give it to another hospital, right? Correct. Okay. So can you walk me through what happens when there's a patient who has decided they'll be an organ donor um, and, and they want to heart let you take whichever organs can be put to good use. Absolutely. As you know, uh, when the person dies, uh, they don't need that organ. And uh, normally, uh, this organ can be used for uh, another person here. Uh, there was sometimes uh, a misconception that uh, these people, when they sign off to donate, uh, they may, some patients told me that they may let them go just to take their organ. This is absolutely wrong. Uh, normally, the brain that is uh, declared by neurosurgeon and by the ICU people and the transplant program are not involved. So uh, all effort will be done to save the patients regardless if they are donor or not. But when there is uh, no way that we can save them and uh, it's almost certain that these people are going to die, then uh, the OPO will get involved, not even the transplant uh, program. So uh, the organ procurement organization, uh, here is Finger Lakes, they go and approach the family and talk to them and, uh, and they will get their consent. Um, I think the society as a wall, and you know, if one break is not good, then the whole wall is not stable. So we have to feel that if there is a sick people out there, they, they live in, in our society and they are a burden to the society. And by saving them, we actually save ourselves and save our society to be a better society and a stronger society. Um, a lot of crimes and a lot of you know, uh, unhappiness that we feel um, sometimes occurs. It's certainly related to we have unhealthy people there uh, that need our help. And one of that is uh, transplant. Uh, certainly a sick father or a mother will have a huge impact on the family for, uh, you know, they cannot raise their children well. Sure. And those children may be getting in the street and have a different life than when you have a good father and a good mother there to, you know, educate them, mentor them. And when you go into dialysis, for example, three times a week and you're sick and you come home and you're, you're, your pressure is low and you cannot even talk to somebody all day. So these people will miss a big portion of 
you know, mentoring and uh, raising their children the way they like. So it's a lot of impact on our society by donation. And I think no one should hesitate when it comes to donate organs. Um, well, once I, once consent is given and you have that, right. does the surgeon begin harvesting the organs while someone else is finding a, a, an appropriate match for them? Right. Matching is not important these days. I said it before. And uh, indeed, with the new knowledge of immunology and the new medication we have, uh, the matching uh, issue has been paled. Uh, we mostly, uh, when the consent is taken, then we start allocating the organs, and we try to allocate as much as organ as we can, including heart, lung, cornea, uh, even tendons, uh, bones. Uh, these days we can take a lot of things for, for a transplant. And um, then different center may be contacted, and different teams uh, come to do the procurement, the heart team, the lung team, the liver, the kidney, pancreas, and so forth. So uh, after coordinating all this effort together, then we set a time. And they say, for example, the procurement will occur at 10 p.m. Uh, unfortunately, most of this procurement happened in the middle of the night because our OR are more ready at that time and less uh -huh. busy. Uh, um, then we uh, come here and each uh, team will dissect and uh, procure their own organs and then they have to rush to their own center to uh, implant the organs. Okay, interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Mark Loftavi, Professor of Surgery and the Interim Chief of Transplant Services. Now, Upstate is known for its um, kidney transplant program, but I wanted to also ask you about the pancreas transplant program. What are we offering with pancreas transplants these days? Well, uh, the pancreas tra uh, transplant program at Upstate established uh, in, uh, I think, uh, July 2016. Uh, and uh, since then, we have done uh, a good numbers of pancreas transplant. The thing that we are very proud of is that we have 100% patient and graft survival at one year, which the national average is about 80%. So we are one of the best uh, outcome in the country. Uh, that's mostly done for diabetic patients. And, you know, as diabetes is a... A devastating disease uh, is number one for blindness, number one for kidney failure, uh, number one for cardiovascular problems, and therefore uh, uh, saving patients from the prison of diabetes uh, is is enormous uh, impact on their health. So uh, all diabetics have to think uh, of pancreatic transplant. Uh, we offer it to type one and. Uh, other kind of type 2 diabetes also can be benefit from uh, pancreas uh, transplant. Um, Do you ever see a patient who needs both a pancreas and a kidney? Yes, and we have actually uh, a good number of our patients that they require also kidney and pancreas. As I said, diabetes is number one cause of kidney failure. Thus, uh, about 30% of our waiting list for kidney are diabetic and uh, some of them are eligible for pancreas transplant. So we offer both kidney, combined kidney and pancreas transplant at the same time. Would they come from the same donor then? Yes. Okay. But also there are uh, other type that we offer that uh, in patients that they already have a, a kidney transplant, uh, they can be also receiving pancreas after that from a different uh, donor. Also, there are diabetic that they have 
a good kidney function, they also can be a candidate for pancreas transplant alone. Interesting. Okay. Well, I, I know uh, the idea of living donor transplants is growing in the field for kidneys, right? Right. Um, are we seeing more of those being done at Upstate? It's slightly improving, I think, in our program, but we like to see it better. Um, there is not enough organ, you know. There is a huge organ shortage around the country. Every year about 6,700 people die in the United States while we're uh, waiting for an organ transplant. And therefore, I think uh, living donor is, uh, is the only solution uh, we have that we can increase the uh, kidney transplant and even liver transplant done from living donor. Uh, we cannot control deceased donor because it fluctuates. Right. As you see, well, sometimes you get six and sometimes you get nothing. And, uh, but living donor can be scheduled. Normally, if you are healthy, uh, donation of one kidney to your friend or family should not compromise your general health. We have data from people who donated uh, 30, 40 years ago, and when we look at them, indeed they did better than the general population because we don't check the general population for good health. Do you but, think we're um, ever going to see sort of a mechanical kidney or a mechanical pancreas? We've had the artificial heart, right? Right. There are uh, some research in this field, indeed, to uh, grow stem cells, and uh, we can have some of these stem cells to uh, secrete insulin, for example, or we can actually uh, build a kidney. But this is uh, just in the beginning, and uh, probably will take our time till sure. we will have it in, uh, in a clinical use. Now, I noticed that you're involved in some clinical trials here at Upstate as well, um, having to do with rejection and immunosuppression. Correct. Can you uh, tell me about those? Yes, we established, uh, when I came to Syracuse, we established the uh, research component of the transplant, uh, which we are very active. Currently, we have four protocols, uh, that uh, very cutting-edge uh, protocols that we conduct here at Upstate. Uh, one of the more interesting one is that, to, as you know, when we do transplant, we have to give the patient drugs called immunosuppression. And these are not uh, unharmful. So uh, there is harm of immunosuppression. Uh, here at Abstate, we're trying to bring a new strategy that actually eliminates completely the harm of the immunosuppression or uh, reduce it as much as possible uh, to prevent many difficulties that we have with the immunosuppression medication. So the immunosuppression still has to be given to help the body accept the organ, right? Correct. I think there is no way uh, that we can put an organ without giving them immunosuppression. And those immunosuppression has certainly improved tremendously from the old days, uh, but still uh, they have uh, their own side effects. And uh, sometimes these side effects are serious. Um, thanks God now we have many of them, then when we reach a very uh, severe side effects, we can switch from one to another one. But 15 years ago, we didn't. We have only one or two drugs. But regardless of this, uh, the harm of the immunosuppression now is significant and uh, certainly reducing or eliminating completely those harms would benefit the patient in general and the outcome too. Well, that's very, very good to know. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. My guest has been transplant surgeon, Dr. Mark Loftavi. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Coming up next, a stroke neurologist answers your questions about stroke on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. May is Stroke Awareness Month, so I pulled together some questions having to do with stroke. And with me in the studio to answer them today is Dr. Hesham Masood and Nurse Josh Onion. Um, Josh is the Interim Stroke Outreach Program Coordinator and the stroke, uh, stroke Certified Registered Nurse from the Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center. And Dr. Masood is an Assistant Professor of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Radiology, and his expertise is in stroke and interventional radiology. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So just so listeners know, most of these questions were submitted on the Upstate Medical uh, University Facebook page. So they come from real people, including some HealthLink on Air listeners. And we're going to cover a lot of this in the interview, but I want listeners to understand from the beginning that Upstate really has distinguished itself in the area of stroke care. Um, To be designated a comprehensive stroke center is not just a fancy name. I know it was a long, involved process, but for patients and family members who may need the care someday. Josh, can you explain what that covers? Sure. Um, Being a comprehensive stroke center is really a coveted level of achievement for any medical center. Uh, There's different levels of achievement you can get for stroke centers. And the first one being a stroke ready center, basically you can treat a stroke patient in your emergency department, safely give them TPA and most likely transfer them to a higher level of care. TPA is a stroke medicine. Yes. Yep. That's a a thrombolytic. So it breaks up the clot if you are having that type of stroke. Uh, the next level is a primary stroke center. That's uh, throughout New York State. We see several of those. Uh, that's the next le- level of designation. You have to meet certain criteria to be a primary stroke center. Comprehensive stroke center is on top of that ladder. Uh, we have the most strict criteria for our stroke patients, the most stringent time targets, and the most quality uh, quality mechanisms for process improvement. Uh, being a comprehensive center means to us that we have interventional therapies as well as we can give the drug TPA. We can do it in a very timely manner. We also monitor the patients very closely post-procedure and post-TPA, uh, report these metrics to New York State. There's a lot of things that we have to do to become comprehensive and maintain it. Uh, this past year has been really exciting for us. We just renewed our designation as Comprehensive Stroke Center with our, our accrediting body, so really exciting for us. And we'll see throughout this interview, this will come out more, but um, we actually Upstate has a, a reach in multiple counties um, with, with stroke treatment. Um, we're, I'll ask you more about that with Telestroke later. Mm-hmm. But um, Dr. Masood, one of your research interests on your biography is listed as stroke mimics, and I assume that's things that present a patient has symptoms that look like a stroke but it ends up being something else but um so my question is how often does a patient who appears to be having a stroke actually turn out to be having some other medical problem yeah and so you know it's it's a good question um up to one-third of the cases i would say uh, that we see turn out to be a stroke mimic and that's because there are a lot of medical conditions that can present with symptoms that are concerning for a neurologic deficit And any neurologic deficit that's new 
is a stroke until proven otherwise. And so, so what deficit, what, what does that mean? A difficulty deficit. talking, a difficulty um, behaving in the way that they used to, an altered mental status is what sometimes it's, it's referred to as. Sometimes it can be a patient who suffered a stroke, had a great recovery, but then something else medical is going on so much so that the symptoms of that old stroke start to bubble up a little bit more. Um, those are challenging because you have to treat every new uh, symptom complaint as potentially a new event. And so it's important that I communicate that, you know, the, the most important thing for someone who's suffering uh, some symptom that is concerning for a stroke is to present to the emergency room. Because if I can't suss it out that it's a mimic and the time is ticking, I will administer the clot-busting drug because the benefit certainly outweighs the risk. And there's lots of case series that we have in the literature that show us that if someone has administered the clot-busting drug, and in fact they don't have a stroke, there really isn't a consequence to it from a patient harm standpoint. And so that's why when we you know, educate our residents, we tell them, listen, when in doubt, give the medication. And some of the, the, the common stroke mimics are things like seizure. After a seizure, sometimes you can have a unilateral or one side of the body can be weak. That's called a Todd's paralysis. That potentially can mimic a stroke. Um, urinary tract infections notoriously can cloud people's sensorium or their mental status. And is that a language impairment from a stroke or is that a urinary tract infection? That's something that you sort of uh, figure out uh, when the patient arrives. Um, you can have, very rarely, there can be conditions where there is a non-organic cause, meaning you don't find any problem with the brain, and it may be something that is in the realm of, the, of, a, of a mental or psychiatric issue. Um, with that being said, I, 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 I try not to uh, have that bias me, because, you know, everyone can, any person can have a stroke, and everybody reacts to the symptoms of a stroke differently. So being tearful or being stoic doesn't necessarily tell me whether or not this is a real stroke or not a real stroke. It comes down to the neurologic exam, an objective assessment, looking at vitals, looking at imaging, so on and so forth. And then again, when in doubt, treat. So this would be a good time to review the signs and symptoms of, of stroke. Yeah. So when I talk to my patients about how to think of the signs and symptoms of stroke, I try to make it as basic as possible. And really what it is, is it's a sudden subtraction of a function that you had. I could see, suddenly I can't. I could use my hand, suddenly I can't. I could speak, I could understand, I could feel, so on and so forth. And we have certain scales that we use uh, in, the, you know, in, in EMS when responding to uh, a stroke emergently that sort of focus on the most common symptoms that you see in a stroke. And that's related to the majority of the blood going to the front of the brain. And the front of the brain has the language function, the motor function, which is your ability to move your arm, your ability to feel, things like that. And so that's why most of the strokes occur in that circulation, and most of the scales look at those common symptoms. So paramedics are trying to look for that. Absolutely, and there are a couple of different scales that are used, and they have a common thread, and there are some additional symptoms that are being added to them to try to characterize bigger strokes from smaller strokes. Okay. So once the patient makes it to the emergency room, what do you do to diagnose whether it is a stroke? I think the first step is to kind of define what a stroke is. And a stroke can be of two types. It can be because of a blockage to an artery, and so the part of the brain that's not receiving blood is dying. And that's 80%. 
And then 20% is actually a burst in an artery, and that can be a large or a smaller artery. And that's too much blood, that's a bleed. And so those are both strokes, but when we talk about it, we always think of the clot because that's the 80% uh, of strokes. So the first step is to figure out which kind of stroke you're dealing with. You can't suss it out based on the symptoms because brain damage is brain damage. Um, what, it has to, what you do is you get a CAT scan and the CAT scan will tell us uh, if the patient has a bleed or if they have uh, a stroke. And it really specifically, it just excludes the possibility of a bleed. That's all it does. You get additional scans later down in your uh, diagnostic reasoning that tell you uh, what kind of, what kind of um, clot it could be. So the scans are essential? The, 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 that first uh, CAT scan is essential because it puts you on one of two different care paths. Okay. Well, one of the questions we received is about TIAs and RINDs. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those, and how, how do they how do they relate yeah. to stroke? So, so these are both terms that relate to neurologic symptoms that occur suddenly and resolve within a period of time. And between a TIA and an RIND, they use different time frames as to how they defined how long you can uh, how long a period before they'll say okay. This has not resolved in our definition time frame. Um, there's another entity called a TSI, which is essentially a stroke that's occurred with brain damage seen, uh, but the symptoms have reversed. And I think that that's the more important thing to focus on is um, whether or not there is brain damage from the event, as opposed to whether or not the symptoms improved within an arbitrary time frame of six hours, 24 hours. I think those were definitions that had to be made in, a, in an era where we didn't have the technology that we have now and the ability to demonstrate tiny strokes that don't have so much of a clinical manifestation. But make no mistake, any stroke is brain damage and any stroke needs to be treated. We got to figure it out and prevent another stroke. And oftentimes the TSI or the TIA or the RIND, these, you know, these, these terms, they are harbingers of a bigger, badder stroke down the line. And so it's really your opportunity as a physician to diagnose why the stroke happened and to prevent the bigger one that's coming down. It's a preview so it's of coming a, attractions. It is a preview. Yeah. So if someone who has one of these tiny strokes needs to... Yeah. I would say if you have a neurologic symptom that is sudden and onset, if it improves or not, is irrelevant to me. I want you to come to the emergency room immediately, and I want you to be worked up for it. And if it's something minor, you may get your workup outpatient in the clinic. You may not need to be admitted. But the first step is not to make that assumption. And I've seen people wildly fluctuate from having big symptoms to nothing, and then big symptoms back and forth, and found you know pretty significant uh, deficit eventually. So you know, again, if you're having stroke symptoms, um, present immediately. And if it gets better before you get here, great. But we still got to work it up. John? And that's something that uh, Dr. Masood talks about is the, the stroke, the classic stroke symptoms. We teach the community FAST, the acronym FAST. It's very easy to remember, very common. It's endorsed by the AHA and taught across the world, essentially. So uh, to, re- to reiterate, F-A-S-T, face being a facial droop, uh, A being arm or leg weakness, S being speech, speech trouble or difficulty, and T being time, time to call 911. So these TIAs and mini strokes that Dr. Masood talked about, uh, often our patients will see resolving symptoms on themselves and their loved ones, and they'll neglect to call 911. 
they'll think the stroke is fixing itself or this isn't that big of a problem. Part of our community awareness is to, uh, what I say, call for all. So whether your symptoms resolved or you're, they're still concerned, don't try to figure it out on your own. Let us figure it out for you. So I teach that to the community as well as EMS, uh, this call for all mantra. So despite the time you last saw yourself normal, despite what you look like now, if there was something wrong, call 911, let us figure that out for you. That's what we're here for. Um, that message is getting across pretty good. We see a lot of TAs coming in recently, an increased number specifically, which kind of helps us understand that they are understanding this fast message and they are all, they are calling 911. So. Okay, well that's and, good to know. And it's yeah. the American Heart Association that endorses American Heart, them. American Stroke Association, stroke. yes. They collaborate. Well, let me ask, when a person is having a stroke, can they hear and comprehend what is going on and being said around them? Oftentimes, yes, they can. Now, the... You know, it really does depend, though, on which part of the brain is affected. It's very rare for a stroke to cause a hearing impairment, um, but it, it can be seen uh, where a stroke can affect your ability to comprehend or your ability to express yourself. Can you tell by, I mean, how do you tell if the person understands what's happening? We have a neurologic exam that do. we do, and we have them uh, follow some commands, simple and complicated, one-step and two-step, three-step commands, and then we're able to kind of figure out how much uh, the patient can understand. And assuming they do understand, is it important to address them during the treatment? Absolutely. Care, I would say it's that... important to address every patient, whether or not you're able to uh, objectively assess that they can understand. I would assume, and, and I make this assumption and tell my trainees that anytime you enter a patient's room, whether this is someone who's on the floor or someone in the neuro ICU who may be, you know, you know sedated, uh, is to address them and to talk them through the exam as you're doing it and to make the assumption that they can hear everything. All right. Well, we've heard how important it is to call 911 at the first sign or that someone may be having a stroke. But in the time it takes the ambulance to get there, what should the loved one do uh, or not do for the person that, that may be having the stroke? Is You know, for a stroke, it really the big difference maker is alerting uh, emergency services to get the patient here as quickly as possible. Uh, it's not the kind of... Um, situation where you know we want you to stabilize the patient's neck or position them in a certain way to avoid a complication early on. I think it's intuitively important to pay attention to airway, how the patient's breathing, uh, if there's any evolution in the patient's exam that you notify 911 again, uh, that kind of thing. But there's nothing uh, specific that I think uh, is a difference maker uh, other than you know, alerting EMS and uh, getting the patient here as quickly as, as quick possible. As possible. All right. Some Mrs. questions that we're going to ask, though, when we do see you, we're going to want to know any medications that you're taking at home. So if you are with somebody that's had a stroke, uh, if you have a written list of medications or at least know the pharmacy where they fill their prescriptions, that's good information to have. Um, also, the time that the patient was last seen normal is the major time component of this. This is the first question that EMS is going to ask you and the first question that we're going to ask you too. There's treatment modalities that are very specific to that last known well time. So last known well is when the last time that you were seen normal. So um, I was making my breakfast and all of a sudden my face started to droop on the left at 9 a.m. My last known normal is 9 a.m. So it's pretty easy. Just look at the clock when you see a stroke symptom. That's your time to start that's and time. that's your time to call 911. Right. Well, good right. to know. We'll be right back to continue our discussion about stroke. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about stroke with stroke neurologist Dr. Hesha Masood and neuronurse Joss Onion from Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center. Now, for each of the patients that you care for who have a stroke, um, are you always able to pinpoint the reason why they had the stroke? You know, sometimes um, I would say in up to 20 to 30 percent, we, we, we're not able to immediately identify uh, why the stroke happened. Um, we have a lot of things that we do in the outpatient setting uh, for prolonged monitoring that helps us identify things in a delayed fashion. For instance, an irregular heart rhythm may not be persistent but be a risk factor, and it may take us time to kind of catch it, uh, and that's what I mean by doing prolonged monitoring. Uh, but there are some patient populations where you don't really find anything that, that grabs you as to why this patient had a stroke. Usually that's a younger population. In that population, we found that maybe 40% of them can have something called a PFO, which is essentially a potential door between two chambers of the heart that really sort of exclude the vein blood from the arterial blood, and that has implications for stroke mechanisms. Is that a heart abnormality? It's uh, it, one in five people has it, and it's usually inconsequential. Huh. Uh, but you know, the point being that yeah, there there are certain associations that we see in this. Um, group of patients where we don't know exactly why there's a stroke, and that's an ongoing area of, of research, and um, we keep looking, you know. Well, I've heard of people having a stroke during sex. Is sex dangerous for... No, I mean, so sex, the physical, the, as far as I understand, I think the physical exertion required in sex, on average is around two flights of stairs. Um, and really the way that it works is, the way that I think about it is, you know, any time that you're going to have a period of exertion, if you have uncontrolled risk factors like high blood pressure, um, then maybe that will have a lower threshold for, you know, something bad to occur if you were to be under a period of stress. With that being said, you know, it is a form of exercise and it is an essentially important part to returning to society and, and getting back to what you're, what you're used to doing. And so um, I would say absolutely uh, not to consider it at all as a risk factor or as something uh, that uh, hinders you in any way after having a stroke. You should absolutely try as much as you can to get back to a normal lifestyle and not worry about it. But there are some risk factors um, that put a person at higher risk for stroke, right? If you have uncontrolled risk factors like high blood pressure, absolutely. I mean, that, but that goes for any kind of physical exertion is your thresholds are lowered if you have uncontrolled risk factors. And then it's just a matter of a precipitant that crosses that threshold. Um, and controlling those risk factors increases your threshold so that you're more protected. So it's and, more about risk factors than it's actually about the activity. And it seems to me some people may have risk factors that set them for a higher risk for stroke and not know they have them, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. High blood pressure is a classic Absolutely. Yeah, that's a silent killer in the background. Another one is uh, an irregular heartbeat that may present itself uh, in the background without you having any clinical manifestation, and that irregularity can predispose someone to having a stroke. Sometimes we, we discover these things at the time of the stroke, and it's a new onset problem. So I wanted to ask you about aneurysms. Are they ever discovered in the brain before they burst? I would say in most instances, because of the technology now um, that we're getting CAT scans in more and more people, um, we're able to uh, diagnose these aneurysms before they rupture. And the good news is, is that most aneurysms will not rupture. Uh, we have uh, some clinical variables that we look at, some things that have to do with how the aneurysm looks, where it's oriented towards, the shape of it, so on and so forth, that help us determine a risk profile 
to determine which aneurysms should be preemptively treated and which ones can be watched um, for interval growth, which would then precipitate a treatment. And that would be someone who had like a CT for some other reason. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, sometimes when we're evaluating patients who have stroke, what do we do? We get a picture of your brain. We also get a picture of your arteries. That completes a stroke workup. And oftentimes we find incidental things when we look at your arteries. And that can be in the brain, the neck, and the chest. Interesting. Um, what's the youngest person you've ever cared for with stroke? So I don't do pediatrics. So I think the youngest I did was a pretty adult-looking 16-year-old, um, and that required some consent from the family, and that was a while ago. The oldest patient I've taken care of recently was over 100 years old. I think he was 104 years old. We gave him TPA, and he went home a couple of days later. They did really well. And TPA is the, the clot buster That's the clot medication. medication. So um, it typically is recovery more difficult the older you are? Or? Yeah, I, I would say because, you know, depending on how bad your deficit is, we have specialty rehab services that will come in and evaluate you and they'll determine how many hours a day that you can commit or are able to sustain for rehabilitation. And the older we are, the less amount of time that they can do. And so that's why I think in an elderly populations, it's even more important to get that early management to save them from having to go to rehab, which is counterintuitive to what it used to be, which is like, oh, no, 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 they're too old. Maybe we shouldn't expose them. It's like, well, no, because they're not going to do well in a nursing home. So in fact, you should be more aggressive if that patient is in fact up to that point independent. Okay. Then it's justified. Absolutely. How do you talk to loved ones about um, the damage from a stroke and whether it's permanent or, or how permanent it is? Yeah. Um, well, fortunately, we have brain scans. There's a, there's a sensitive sequence on the MRI scanner that allows us to quantify the burden of stroke. And it's nice to show patients and their family members the picture of where the damage is in relation to what a normal brain looks like. That helps facilitate conversations. Um, the neurologic exam is a big determinant for me about functional recovery. Intuitively, the worse your exam is up front, the less the possibility is of a full recovery down the line uh, and vice versa. And so the other thing is um, I don't prognosticate for functional recovery early because we know there are lots and lots of variables uh, that uh, come into play after discharge in terms of sustained rehab, quality of rehab, engagement, so on and so forth, that can really be a difference maker. And so I typically see our patients 90 days from the event, and that's when we can start to see the patients plateau in functional recovery, and then I can start to give them an idea of what they may kind of settle at. Um, but that's not to say that uh, rehab beyond that point is not beneficial. You mentioned variables. Is some of it um, based on how much the patient you know, works in rehab? And yeah, absolutely. Here, you know, You asked a great question about, you know, can patients understand that they're having a stroke and comprehend? And in the patients that can't, they do poor, poorly in rehab because guess what? They don't think there's a problem. And so they don't engage in the rehabilitation. Um, so yeah, absolutely, patient engagement's a big piece yeah. of it. Well, I've got some more questions, but first let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hesham Masood and neuronurse Josh Onion about stroke care. And we're going to turn now to some questions that are a bit more technical. Um, there's been a recent trend in urban and rural settings uh, with mobile stroke units, um, ambulances that are specially outfitted for uh, stroke care. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the efficacy of this trend. 
So the, the idea behind a mobile stroke unit is a, a, a large ambulance that's equipped with uh, a neurologist via telemedicine generally or present, as well as the capabilities to treat your stroke with that TPA, the clot-busting drug. In order to do that, you need to have a CAT scanner on this ambulance also. So if you can picture the size of this rig, as we had a portable CAT scanner and a, a nurse and a driver and a, a technologist, uh, there's a lot that goes on to make this work. So we're seeing larger cities across the nation uh, using these mobile stroke units to initially diagnose a patient in the field. Do you have a, a bleeding type of stroke or do you have a stroke that requires the clot buster? That's really the, the main purpose for this type of rig. Now, uh, we've, we've talked about it for the Syracuse area. We're challenged geographically because we have the city of Syracuse and then we have the North Country that we're also responsible for being a comprehensive center in Syracuse. Um, there's a lot of geographical barriers, snow, et cetera, that might limit the use of this mobile stroke unit. It is something new. I'll let Dr. Masood give his feels on this also. Yeah, I mean, I think anything that allows us to triage you to the care path early and get you early management is always going to be a positive thing in a rapidly progressive disease like a stroke. Uh, like Josh was saying, there, there are considerations, though, in relation to the resources that are required and if it works for every geography. And, you know, like you said, I think the first one in America was in Houston. And, you know, the roads in Houston are different than the roads in Syracuse. Um, this all kind of started with an experience in Germany with their mobile stroke units. And, and yeah, there is, there is some data that, to show us that there are shorter treatment times when you employ um, this um, ambulance. Um, but again, you know, are, is the ambulance always available? Is if it's tied up in one case, then what do you do for the other case? So on and so forth. Or even finding that when you, des in, in the, at least in that German trial, you know, they had weeks that, that you, they called the, the mobile stroke unit STEMO. So you had STEMO weeks on, STEMO weeks off, but they found that on both weeks, they were doing better. But it's no question that quicker um, treatment equals oh, better Oh, absolutely. Outcomes. And anything we can do to facilitate that uh, is, is going to be a, a huge difference maker. But what is Upstate doing already um, to help facilitate quicker treatment? Yeah, so, um, you know, Josh had mentioned that, you know, these rigs often employ either a, a person, you know, a neurologist who's present and the it's it's hard to, to sort of monopolize the neurologist's time in the in the in the ambulance because not all response is going to be stroke related. Um, so there's telemedicine, uh, which is essentially a video connection, uh, sort of like a FaceTime in the ambulance, um, and and then you're able to talk with a specialist like a stroke neurologist, and that's something that uh, Upstate has worked uh, pretty pretty hard on, and, and Josh specifically has helped maintain and grow a. Um, a telestroke uh, network with uh, with lots of spoke hospitals. I think we're up to 11 right now. Yeah, we have 11. Uh, mostly throughout the North Country, a couple south of Syracuse. And the idea behind and the mission behind our telemedicine services is to really make sure that these spoke sites, emergency departments, could function similarly that we function in Syracuse. Have the neurology consult available within a certain amount of time period of the patient arrival to make sure the patient gets the, the clot-busting medication timely. And what we've been able to do is really shorten the time that the patient arrives in the ED to the time they see our neurologist. Uh, so we're seeing great treatment times from these spoke sites that don't see very many strokes, but they're doing a really nice job with what they see with the help of our telemedicine docs. Uh, we're utilizing 
air medical often, as well as ground transport to get the patients to Syracuse if they are requiring uh, the next level of therapy, that clot retrieval, uh, or a different evaluation from one of our neurologists on site in Syracuse. We work pretty closely with the regional resources, hospitals, uh, and EMS companies to make sure everything's kind of cohesive across all of central and northern New York. So anyone who's having what appears to be a stroke can access through the hospital a, a stroke neurologist from upstate basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, we have, we have a, a network and there's a protocol and uh, that protocol is initiated by the ED provider in the spoke hospital based on the time of onset and the therapeutic window. Really, the biggest advantage of having telestroke is for the patients who are presenting within that therapeutic time window for that clot-busting medication, which is readily available at all hospitals and all EDs. And so that's why we have sort of offered this time-based, we'll turn on the screen, you'll get a neurologist, they'll help you decide if that patient is a candidate, if it's safe, how to administer it. And then we do an exam, and then based on that, we can triage to a even a more elevated uh, level of care. All right. Well, we got a question about the um, consequences of using or not using this clot-busting drug, TPA. Yeah. Um, because there's risks with using it, right? Yeah. So the original trial in 1995 quoted a 30% benefit at 90 days. So this is not a typical Lazarus effect that you're, you're doing. This is an investment later down the line in terms of functional recovery. There's a 6% chance of bleeding. 3% of that uh, can be fatal. Uh, so the, with that being said, um, the risk-benefit with those numbers in a patient who's having a stroke favor administering the medication. The problem if you don't get the medication is you're essentially leaving it up to the natural history of that stroke. And depending on how large the territory is at risk, how this stroke wants to evolve or not evolve, strokes are often in the first 24 hours, they're dynamic, they're not static. And if that's the case, uh, then you could actually cheat yourself out of a better functional recovery uh, if you uh, get too afraid of, of the numbers that are quoted. I would say if you're having a stroke within four and a half hours, you should get IVTPA. Okay. And one other question, uh, medication question. This is about the long-term side effects of warfarin or Coumadin. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's also a clot-breaking well, medicine, right? So Coumadin, which also known as warfarin, is, is not a clot-busting medication, uh, it's not something that we would give when someone's having a stroke to, to remove clot or break down clot. It's actually something that we use to thin the blood enough that in certain conditions where patients have a risk for forming clot spontaneously, you increase the threshold for that to happen. So you're, you're making the blood so thin that it's hard for a disease process like an irregular heart rhythm or thick blood from a genetic predisposition to actually form a clot and go up to the brain and cause a stroke. Now, Coumadin, or warfarin, uh, is an old drug, and it is cumbersome to deal with because to know that it's working, you wanna have your patients within a certain range, uh, uh, and that is determined by periodic blood tests, so it's really a lifestyle. And then the medication interacts with everything under the sun, so you can be under-therapeutic or over-therapeutic, and if that's the case, then you can be under-treated or over-treated, and if you're over-treated, there's a risk of bleeding. And so thankfully, we're moving away from Coumadin in the most common indications for its use, specifically irregular heart rate and uh, certain conditions where there are clots in the veins, to these newer medications, which 
you know, were called novel, but, uh, you know, now not so novel because we've been using them for a while. So they're called direct oral anticoagulants. Lots of advertisements on TV. I'm sure uh, the audience may have heard of some of them. But those represent an advancement in, um, in, in the preventing strokes uh, for, certain, for certain cases because they're safer drugs for the most part. They don't require monitoring. Um, so you know that if you're taking it, it's working. Uh, less bleeding risk and more prevention of stroke. So it's something that you're seeing more and more patients are, oh, are being put on. That's good to know. Yeah. Well, this has been very informative, and I want to thank you both for the, making the time to be here and do this interview. Thank you. My guests have been stroke nurse Josh Onion and stroke neurologist Dr. Hesha Masood from Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Donna Steiner is a professor at SUNY Oswego. Her work appears in literary journals such as Bellingham Review, The Sun, and Fourth Genre. She takes an amusing look at insomnia and offers the reader some tips for surviving it in her poem, What Insomniacs Do in Bed. Listen to the wind, lament our lack of vocabulary to adequately describe the bone ache of 4 a.m., admire the fluid moonlight overfilling the squares of window, admire the undervalued texture of flannel sheets, admire the capacity of our aging lungs, establish a goal to use modulated breaths to mimic the sound of wind, note the absence of wind, Note the absence of cricket call, bird call. Note the absence of howl. Note the absence of rain, of drizzle, of shower. Note the absence of humidity. Wonder about the bottle of water on the nightstand, neither half full nor half empty. Does it exist if no one sips from it, if no one can see it in the pitch? Wonder about germs and mites and viruses and whether they multiply right now upon our skin around our eyes and mouth. Wonder about love, how it was everywhere, always, and seems now otherwise. Do not envy the sleeping, for we know not of what they dream. Attend to the between, between wind and absence of wind, the hammock between breath and deeper breath, between the scrap-heaped stars above and the scrap-heaped trees below. Accept your constellation of gifts, the gift of sleeplessness, the gift of restlessness, the gift of fatigue, and the gift of sorrow. Repetition is a form of education, the repetition of breath, of eye blink, of heart thrum, and of course, the merciful repetition of daybreak. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, 
an increase in serious infections related to the opioid epidemic, and what you need to know about colon cancer screening. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.